Many people think that the year 2020 has basically been wasted and that the new year 2021 cannot possibly be as bad. With the vaccine, there's much hope that surely, at long last, it won't be long before normality is returned to us. But my friends, we're Christians. We don't think like the world. And dare I say it, that even normality is not what we long for. We know that this present world is passing away. Normality, permanence, will only be found in eternity. But while the world changes, God doesn't change and Scripture does not change. So let's hear what Scripture says. It's Paul's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 1, the last few verses from verse 27. Hear the word of God that we're going to look at this morning, God willing. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul writes this letter from prison probably in Rome. And of course, imprisonment is not what anybody chooses for himself or herself. And yet Paul is rejoicing. It's become an amazing opportunity for him to bring the gospel to the soldiers who are the emperor's Bodyguard, the Praetorian Guard, as they're called there in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul isn't really concerned whether he's released from prison and found innocent or whether he's condemned and put to death. Because he's certain, even if what we call the worst happens and he's executed, that's only the gateway to be with Christ. As he says, his concern is not his outward circumstance. His concern is that he'll say nothing at his trial or as he's guarded by soldiers that will cause him to be ashamed. You can see that in uh, verse 20 of this chapter. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And in verse 27 of this chapter 1, Paul turns to the Philippians. He's not sure whether or not he will ever see them again. But he has one instruction. And I want you to notice, the way he puts it, he has only one instruction. 
He says, only let your manner of life. And he goes on to say, whether I come and see you or or am absent, it doesn't matter whether Paul is present with them or not with them. It makes no difference. I want to bring this to you this morning, my Christian brothers and sisters, that just as Paul wrote to the Philippians, only, I say to you, only, brethren, as we look forward to whatever time the Lord gives us in the future, only let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May that be our one resolve and our prayer. So Paul wants these Philippian Christians to live a life worthy of the gospel. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is the gospel? To live a worthy life before God, I must know what the gospel is. In other words, it's the character of the gospel that determines how a Christian lives. And I don't think it's so much the details of the gospel, but that the gospel, and this is what the word means, that the gospel is good news. It's the best news. It's the news for all time. There's nothing like the gospel. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the gospel deals with the greatest problem we have, the problem of sin, the problem of our broken relationship with God. This is the problem that underlies every other problem. This is the problem that entered the world, the good world that God made when Adam and Eve sinned. And the curse of God upon the world entered. And this gospel not only deals with the greatest problem, but it's the only solution to that problem. And that solution is that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This amazing, unbelievable thing that God has done in sending his own son to live and to die and to be raised again from the dead. This is why the gospel is the greatest news that you can ever imagine. And that's why this gospel must be given first place. Nothing less than that. Indeed, I think we go further. This gospel colours absolutely everything in our lives. So because the gospel is the great, the greatest thing, the supreme thing, it colours our lives and when we hold it like that, then we begin to live a life that's worthy of that gospel. 
Now, of course, the second thing we have to ask, as Paul says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, what is that life? Well, usually, if you keep reading, you'll find out what it is. And Paul goes on in the verses that follow, especially the remainder of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28, to describe that manner of life. He says, manner of life. Uh, in my version of the Bible, there's a note which says, this could be translated literally as to behave as citizens. It is a very special word. Philippi was a Roman colony. And those who were citizens of Philippi were treated as if they were citizens of Rome, as if they were actually residing in Rome with all the privileges involved in that. Now, of course, Paul isn't saying live as citizens of Rome, but later in his letter, he is telling them of which country they are citizens in chapter 3 and verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So when he says, your manner of life, or behave as citizens, he's saying, you are citizens of the heavenly realm. Behave accordingly. To know that our real country is the heavenly country is to affect all of our life because it's from there that we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our country, of course, there are many foreign nationals from Europe, from Africa, from the Far East, etc., etc. Insofar as they are citizens of the country where they were born or where they've resided, then their allegiance is ultimately to that country and not to the one that they're now residing in. So what does it mean then to live a life worthy of the gospel? It doesn't mean that you're going to earn eternal life through this worthy life. You're not going to earn its blessings, but you're going to show by your life how great the gospel is. Now, from time to time, we get a visiting head of state. And the really big visits, when the head of state steps off the plane, there is the red carpet and all the dignitaries waiting to welcome the head of state. They get into not just one car, but a car which is part of a motorcade. And slowly they wend their way to Buckingham Palace or wherever it may be. A banquet is held in their honour. This is all done to show the greatness of this head of state and how much we 
uh, honour our relationship with that country. So how do we show the greatness of this gospel of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we show the glory of the gospel? Well, Paul's answer is in the words that follow. Look at them. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He wants the church in Philippi to be united for the faith of the gospel, to stand for it, to strive for it, and not to be frightened by the opponents. He wants them to stand, first of all, with the purpose of striving. It's a picture of a soldier who takes his stand on the piece of ground that he's going to defend. And then he's going to strive to defend it against all attack. He does this for the faith of the gospel. We must know what we believe. We must know what is the historic Christian faith that Christians have held throughout the centuries. We should be familiar with creeds and confessions of faith because there are so many false gospels, counterfeit faiths. There were in Galatia, for example, as Paul writes to the Galatians, and he starts so strongly in chapter 1. He says, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And you'll find as you read the New Testament letters, many of those letters are written against the background of false teaching. The letter to the Colossians, for example, to the Thessalonians, to Hebrews, to James. This is so common. And Paul is saying, don't be passive. Don't just say to yourself in your mind, well, I believe the gospel, everything is okay. You need to be active because this is a spiritual war. And let us say it very clearly, that the devil's tactic is primarily false gospels. If he can get you to believe a false gospel, if he can get you to cease striving against false gospels, then he's won the day. Look how he writes to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, about these last 2,000 years that he calls the latter times. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits 
and the teachings of demons. And he goes on to talk about some of those demonic teachings. This is the devil's way. And I want to say to you, false teaching, false gospels are not only what is said, but also what ought to be said that is not said. A few years ago, there was one of the most listened to sermons. They say a quarter to a third of the world heard this slightly over 10 minute sermon. It was at the royal wedding. It was a sermon about love. And many people, so many people thought, what a wonderful sermon it is. If only people would listen to this, they would become Christians. One well-known atheist said, you've almost convinced me to believe in God. Apart from the fact that people use words in different ways, what does love mean? What was very noticeable about the sermon? was that there was no mention of sin or repentance from sin. How can it be a gospel message if you don't speak of the problem and then how it's going to be solved? It's not solved by the example of Christ. It's solved by Christ dying for our sins as a sacrifice upon the cross and so I say to you there's a multiplicity of false gospels and it's so important that we know what we believe we stand on it and we strive for it but I want you to notice then this emphasis that Paul has he's writing to a church and he's saying I want you to be united he stresses one spirit, probably a reference to the Holy Spirit, one mind, and I want you to do this side by side. Indeed, unity is one of the themes of this letter, and he continues on in chapter 2, and he uses the same phrases, uh, the Spirit and the mind being united. This is something that we do together as a local church. We're like a regiment or a platoon of soldiers. We know that what another person does will help me, and what I do will help them. And so, as a church, we stand united as we confess the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's written in the scriptures. This is the importance of a church having biblical doctrinal standards and that every person who becomes a member of that church says, yes, that is what I believe. And so that it's the Holy Spirit who has shown us this from the scripture and that we have that one mind walking in the same direction along the same road. You see, it's the gospel that creates the church. It's through the gospel that we're saved. 
as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's that same gospel that unites the church. This is why Paul can write to the Ephesian church where he also emphasizes unity, particularly between Jew and Gentile in Christ. He tells them in chapter 4 and verse 3, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You are united. Maintain that unity. And he goes on to talk about that unity. He says there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have the same faith. Let's be then united as a church. And this, my friends, is the importance of being part of such a local church where we expect to be led by overseers who teach us the truth. But such leaders, note well, are not only to give instruction in sound doctrine, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, but they're also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, this emphasis on combating false teaching. It's not enough to feed the sheep. The sheep have, been, have got to be protected from the wolves and from the hyenas. So this means that if you're a Christian, if this is the faith that you have, you need to be involved as much as possible physically as the church meets. It may, of course, at the moment also be virtually. The importance is that we all have the same teaching and when we come to talk together, we talk about it. What you don't understand, you ask somebody. You work out the implications. You see, the church has no passengers. The church has those who are standing and striving together for the faith of the gospel. But then there's a third thing that Paul says. He says, not only must we stand with the purpose of striving, stand united, but we will stand and not be frightened. And this is because we are to expect opposition from within. In any church, there may well be wolves in sheep's clothing. People who for a while say that they are with us, but by their speaking or by their living, they show that they don't really believe in the true gospel. And they have got to be dealt with. And we've got to seek their repentance. If not, we have to disfellowship them. But from without, we definitely expect opposition. Think of what we are called. 
whether it's from the world or the nominal church. We're called traditionalists, and that's said sneeringly. We're called unloving, because perhaps we talk about sin and judgment. We're called unscientific, because we believe the authority of the Word of God. And perhaps we have to expect opposition, even from the powers that be, like Caesar, the very one before whom Paul was appearing in Rome. And Paul says to us, don't be frightened. Because when we're united, and when together as a church we're being persecuted, it's not a bad sign for us. It actually shows that we are on Christ's side. And those who persecute Christ's little ones are persecuting Christ himself. And so there's no question that it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. Paul seems to be referring to the fact that when the church stands together for the faith, there's great encouragement for us. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, he says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's nothing strange about such opposition. The prophets knew it. Supremely, our Lord Jesus Christ knew it. The apostles knew it. It's been known throughout the history of the church. And Jesus says, when it happens to us, together on his account, rejoice and be glad. So the last thing that I want to bring to you from this passage as we look forward to the coming year and however long the Lord will give us, I want to remind you that such a worthy life in accordance with the gospel will involve suffering. This is not unique to Paul or the Philippians. Paul says, this is the conflict that I had and even now have as he faces trial in Rome. It's the one that the Philippians had. But we should all expect it because we are also standing and striving for the gospel. And there will be opposition. You didn't enlist to be cared for in a hospital. But when you became a Christian, you enlisted to fight on the battlefield for your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Where are the battles today? Well, there are so many of them. There's a whole issue of science and evolution and creation. There's the issue of sexual identity. There's the issue of pro-life. There's 
cultural Marxism as the way people look at the humanity today is quite different from the way the Bible looks at it. And you know that holding a biblical view on any of those things and others, you can be fired from your job, you can be denied uh, your studies, and each one of them ultimately involves a denial of the gospel. But there's a more fundamental concern for us. The central battle remains the gospel itself. And as we stand for this gospel, in one way or another, we will be opposed by nominal Christianity and by false religion and by the world. I want to remind you then of the basic truths of the gospel which must be there, which must not be neglected. First of all, there's the problem of sin. Sin being disobeying the commandments of God. And the fact that we can do nothing to save ourselves. That's a truth. As unwelcome as it is to proud men and women, it must be maintained. I'm a Christian. I've done nothing to save myself. My only contribution is my sin. And that's true of you. That's true of the whole human race. And then secondly, then, if I can't save myself, the solution is found in God and in him alone. It's only by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, becoming man, and so living the life that we ought to have lived of obedience to God, and then dying the death that we deserve as he was crucified and died for our sins and then rose triumphant on the third day over death and over sin and over the devil and over hell. It's about sin and our inability to save ourselves. It's about what God has done in Jesus Christ as centred in the cross of Christ as an atonement. But how is that blessing received? How is the gospel received? It's received by faith as we put our whole trust in Christ who died for sinners. And as we repent because the whole purpose of putting our trust in Christ is to be forgiven our sins and then to be given power to turn our back on the old life and live a new life of obedience to God. So, faith and repentance. That putting things down in the perhaps shortest possible way 
to say that, my brethren, is what we must stand for today, tomorrow, in the coming year and the rest of our lives. What makes it the greatest news? It's all of God. It's all of grace. We don't deserve it. We have the greatest possible blessing. Although we've done nothing whatsoever to earn it, actually, we've done everything to forfeit it. And it's even to the chief of sinners. It doesn't matter who you are, how many privileges you've had, whether you were brought up in a Christian family or not, whether you sunk to the lowest depths like Saul of Tarsus did or the thief on the cross had done. doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, how ignorant you are. This good news, this gospel, is available for anyone and everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, you shall be saved. Is that where you stand this morning? Is that what you are striving for together with the church? Are you fully a part of the church? In worship, in the teaching, in prayer, in service, so that side by side we might encourage one another and not be frightened by our opponents. Are you doing this because of Christ? Because that which he's done for you and that which he's brought to you in terms of salvation is the greatest possible thing in your life, now and for eternity. Well, may God bless his word to us. We're now going to pray. Lord, we thank you for the clear instructions of your word. As we go on from today into what the world emphasizes as a new year, Please help us to have this one thing, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand upon it, to understand it, to strive for it, to seek to speak it to others, not to be afraid when people reject. Help us to do this together as a church, we pray. Grant that we may be renewed uh, together so that we might be a, a wonderful light in this great town of Liverpool and others in other places. Please be merciful to us and speak to us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.